typewriter, does your word processor do the Greek alphabet? Okay, turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 6. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 6. We start last week, I introduced to you a study of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and uh, we're finally going to start on it this morning. I'm not going to go back and review anything that I talked about last week. Uh, so let's get started. We're going to look at several aspects of this prayer. We're going to begin with God's person, and then we'll see his plan, his provision, his pardon, his protection, and finally, uh, we'll look at the postscript in verses 14 and 15. So let's begin with God's person. Look at verse 9. It says, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, Hallowed be your name. <clears throat> Notice how this prayer begins. Pray then in this way. The, the New Living Translation, which is a very dynamic translation, simply puts it, pray like this. Uh, the idea behind it is pray along these lines. It's not saying pray these exact words. Uh, and then Jesus begins by saying, Our Father who is in heaven. That's the invocation that begins this prayer. If you think about it, that's probably the most common term we use in our prayers. We use the word Father over and over again, and rightly so, because that's the pattern that Jesus sets. Uh, prayer begins with a recognition that God is our Father. Now, that simple word, our, is important because it tells us that it refers to believing people. Now, for many years, the liberals have taught the universal fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man, a phrase that they use to teach that God is everyone's father and that we're all God's children. Uh, well, there's only one sense in which that is true, and that's in the sense that he is our creator. Uh, we are only children of God universally insofar as we have been created by God. Malachi 2.10 says, we, Do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Uh, in Acts 17.28, Paul told the philosophers on the Areopagus, that even as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. So in the sense of creation, yes, God is our father. Uh, but in the sense of a personal relationship, God is not the father of all people. Spiritually, unbelievers have another father. John 8.44, Jesus told the Jewish religious leadership, you are of your father, the devil. Uh, in First John, John 3, John very clearly lays out that there are two families, the children of God and the children of the devil. Uh, the children of God do not continue to commit sin. The children of the devil do. And he, so he makes the clear distinction between the two families. There's not simply one family of mankind under one universal uh, fatherhood of God. There are two families in the world, the children of God and the children of the devil. Scripture makes that abundantly clear. There's, there's no way around that. In 2 Peter 1.4, Peter says that God has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So there are those who have been made into the likeness of God and those who remain in this world's corruption. Only those who have been born again have been born into the family of God. 
John tells us in the opening chapter of his gospel that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so then in this introductory statement, our Father, Jesus eliminates the world of unbelieving people. They cannot call him their Father. But there's also a positive side to this also, just as there is the negative. The positive is that our Father is an affirmation of an intimacy with God that is wonderful because in the world, uh, for the world, the gods or God that they worship is a very distinct, remote, and fearful being. Uh, he or she is usually quite unknowable. Uh, sadly, during Jesus' day, there was in Jewish thinking uh, a remoteness about God. The, the saintly Old Testament Jews understood something of the fatherhood of God. There's no question about that. They understood that God was the father. I think they understood it more in a national sense than they did a personal sense. I think they understood it more in terms of God's overall care of the nation uh, than they ever understood the intimacy of a relationship with God as a personal father. And I don't think it was really until Jesus came along that mankind really understood the intimacy of God. And I think that's illustrated graphically when Philip says to Jesus in John 14, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus says, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Uh, it was Jesus who brought us the intimacy of God as our Father. Uh, but in the Old Testament, most Jews understood God as a father, but only in a national sense rather than in a personal sense. However, over the centuries, because of their disobedience to the Lord and their repeated dabbling in the worship of pagan false gods, most Jews had lost a sense of God's intimate fatherhood. God became more and more remote, and it wasn't God who moved. Uh, they moved, and as they moved away from the true religion and true worship and redefined their system to tolerate sinfulness, they cut themselves off from God's fatherly care. And therefore, they assumed that God was remote, and they even stopped calling God, uh, stopped using God's names. Uh, it became a blasphemous thing to even mention the name of God. Uh, they had developed a very wide gulf between them and him. And so when Jesus utters the term, our father, that was shocking to them. It, it awakens them to something lost long ago in the past. It introduces a new kind of intimacy that they didn't understand. For the scribes and Pharisees to think of God as a father was a very empty thought. Uh, the term meant no more to them as Lord or ruler or king. Uh, it referred to someone in, in authority, but without any intimacy. And Jesus uses it in a whole new manner. Jesus injects into some, something rich and special and intimate into that word. Not just in the word he says, but as we shall see, in the way that he brought God to men. Jesus made that intimacy possible. By the way, when Jesus prayed, he always used the word Father. Over 70 times in Scripture, Jesus uses the word Father. He always used it. There's only one time in one prayer 
when, that Jesus prayed that he did not use the word Father. Do you know which prayer that was? On the cross. On the cross. When he was bearing the sins of everyone who would ever believe, he said, my God, my God, why has, have you forsaken me? Uh, and the Father could not look on him with favor. Only then did he not say Father. All the other times, the intimacy of that relationship was expressed. And only in that one temporary moment when it was broken by sin bearing, did he ever address God in any other term. Listen, when you go to God and say, Father, you're not talking to Father Time or Father Goose or Father anyone else. And we're not talking about some deity who's unconcerned and is a father only in a sense of leadership or headship. We're talking about a father who is loving, who is personally involved, who has a close and deep relationship with his children. Now, let me add that it wasn't only the Jews of Jesus' day who thought of God as a distant, uninterested ruler. In the Greek or Roman world of that day, there were two major philosophies about God that existed. Those two views originated with the Stoics and the Epicureans. The Stoics had one essential attribute for God. They said the major or primary attribute of God was apatheia. You see that word on your sheet there. We get the word apathetic from that word. It, it literally means without passion, without feelings. Here's what the Greeks said. They said that if a person can feel love, he can be hurt. If a person can feel joy, he can feel sadness. If a person can feel happy, he can feel unhappy. So therefore, the gods do not feel anything or they could be hurt. So then they chose to be totally passionless, emotionless, and incapable of any feeling. They were apathetic and indifferent. That was the Stoic view of gods. Totally emotionless, passionless, indifferent. The Epicureans had a different idea. They said that the supreme quality of deities is ataraxia. That's the next word there. That was a term which meant complete serenity, complete calm, perfect peace. And so they said that if the gods got involved in human affairs, they could lose their calm. They would lose their cool. And if they get involved in the mess of this world, they'd never be able to maintain their serenity. Therefore, the gods were detached. They just got everything going and then they just walked away from it. And they didn't want to be involved or disturb their serenity. Today, we call that deism. So the Stoics said God's absolutely apathetic and indifferent. The Epicureans said God is absolutely detached, totally uninterested isolated from every human condition. And that's how they thought of their gods, even though they used the term father. Now, what's, what about more recent times? It's not very different. Thomas Hardy, an English philosopher and poet of 100 years ago, referred to God in one of his works as, quote, the dreaming, dark, dumb thing that turns the handle of this idle show, end quote. So the Stoic saw his emotionless God, the Epicurean saw his utterly detached God, and the modern philosopher sees God 
as the dark, dreaming, dumb thing that turns the handle of this idol show. And the Jews of Jesus' time saw God as a father only in a distant, faded, past sense with little meaning. And into all of that confusion, Jesus simply utters two words without any explanation. Our Father. And in so doing, he cracks open a shell that opens up a whole new dimension of meaning. The term in the Greek is pater. Pater. Uh, but Jesus didn't use that term. Because Jesus spoke the common language of the streets, which was Aramaic. Uh, the Bible was written in Koine Greek, or common Greek. It was the primary trade language of the entire Roman Empire at that time, kind of like English is today. Uh, but just as people in other countries speak their native language in everyday life and only speak English as a common language when they're dealing with English speakers, uh, it was the same way with Jesus' time. Uh, the Jews spoke Aramaic when they were going about their daily lives and only used Greek when they encountered a foreigner who didn't speak their language. Uh, so there's little doubt in my mind that Jesus used the word Abba. That was the familiar term, the ordinary term that was used in Aramaic. Abba was the familiar, familial term used by a child for his or her father. In fact, the Talmud says that the first words a child ever learned was to say Abba for their father and Emma for their mother. Now I know that many Bible teachers will tell you that Abba means daddy, because that's what a little child called his father in Aramaic. But that really is not the idea behind the word. Uh, you see, Abba is also the term that an adult child called his father. Uh, it was a term that stressed the child's familial relationship to his male parent. It might be better to understand the word as Papa, because that was the term used by both young children and adult children. Uh, it does not suggest a childlike relationship to the father, but rather the privileged status that the father held to the child, regardless of the child's age. Noted Bible teacher Kent Hughes says that the closest equivalent in English would be dearest father. Uh, that's why you find the term used in Mark 14, 36, Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.6, and each time the translator, whether Mark or Paul, immediately, they use the word Abba and they immediately translate it Father, uh, because that's its closest equivalent in Greek. Interestingly, the Jews of Jesus' time never referred to God by the term Father. They called him by exalted titles, such as Sovereign Lord or King of the Universe. Uh, so when Jesus uses this term to refer to God by the close familial term of Abba, the Jews would have been astounded. They worshiped God like he was a distant king who didn't have a close attachment to his subjects, but Jesus called him Abba, Father. Now, in our English language and culture, the, the term Father is considered rather formal. But put that idea out of your thinking uh, in terms of God. We're to think of him in terms of having a close relationship with a loving, kind, compassionate father who we trust with our very lives. 
Uh, he holds us accountable and disciplines us like every good father does with his children, but he shows us mercy and grace like no human father ever can. So we don't come to God like father the way the Jews did, thinking that he's the God who's only concerned about the whole nation as a people. We don't come to him as an indifferent, detached guy who doesn't really care about what's going on. No, we come to God as an intimate father who cares for each of us as individuals, not simply as a whole group. Now, let me sum up what it means that God is our father. I want to give you six things that this means to us. Six things that it means when we say that God is our father. Number one, <clears throat> it means an end of fear, an end of fear. Missionaries have said for many years that one of the greatest gifts that Christianity brings to the heathen society is the certainty that God is a loving, caring father because heathen people live under the fear of their gods. If you've read the book, Lords of the Earth, uh, you will know about the incredible fear that those people lived under uh, before they were released by faith in Christ. That same story has been repeated a thousand times around the world as adherents to false religions have lived under absolute fear until coming to know the loving Father through the loving Son. Uh, the worlds, Their worlds are literally jammed full of gods that are jealous and hostile and grudging and vengeance-prone and... So, and they live in absolute fear of all of them. And that's why it's so wonderful when Jesus says, our father, because it puts an end to fear. You don't have to fear God. He's your father through Christ. Secondly, knowing God as your father settles uncertainties and brings hope. It settles uncertainties and brings hope. The world's a hostile place, isn't it? We all live in danger of injury and disease and death, and it doesn't take much for it to come crashing down on us. Uh, and now we see our society falling apart and many groups taking aim at Christians who stand for moral truth. No wonder Voltaire said that life is a bad joke. Um, no wonder he said men are fools drowning in a sea of mud. He had no hope. Uh, it was all crashing down, and that's because he didn't have a loving father. But in the midst of a hostile world that's falling apart, folks, God is our father, and he'll take care of it. Third, knowing God as our father settles the matter of loneliness. If God is a father, and that's something lonely people need to know about, right? Uh, even if we are rejected by our family, our friends, our fellow believers, and the rest of the world, we know that our Heavenly Father will never leave us or forsake us. Many people experience loneliness and bitterness and the loss of self-worth and unworthiness and self-despair, and they desperately want someone to care for them. And there's only one person who promises to give that to them when no one else will, and that's God. He's our Father. <clears throat> he said that He's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Uh, the fatherhood of God settles the matter of loneliness. Fourth, knowing God as our father settles the matter of selfishness. Selfishness. Look at the prayer again. It says, our father, not my father. 
there's no singular personal pronouns in this entire prayer. Uh, it embraces the community of believers. What I'm saying is when you pray, don't pray centered on yourself. Pray with your arms wrapped around everyone else. Ephesians 6.18 says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition. Listen to this. For all the saints. Pray for everybody. You know, if you just focus on yourself, you've missed the point. He's not your father. He's not my father. He's our father. The very use of the term our ends all claims to exclusiveness. Fifth, knowing God is our Father settles the matter of resources. It settles the matter of resources. Why? Because it says our Father who is where? In heaven. When you go to your Father for resources, you don't say, Lord, I don't know where to get what I need because there isn't much to draw on here. Listen, he's, he's not dependent on the world's resources. He's, not, he's drawing from heaven's resources. He's the one of whom Paul said, my God will supply some of your needs, right? No, all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He's the one that we were told in Ephesians 1.3 has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Everything in heaven is available in him. He is a loving father who has all the resources of heaven. Arthur Pink said, if God is in heaven, then prayer needs to be the thing of the heart and not the lips, for no physical voice on earth can rend the skies. If God is in heaven, then our souls must be detached from earth. If we pray to God in heaven, then our petitions must be faith, based on faith that he will do as he promised. You want satisfaction? God has it at his disposal. You want fairness? God has it in the heavenlies. Peace, fel friendship, fellowship, knowledge, victory, boldness, it's all there. We pray to a father who has absolutely unlimited eternal resources. Number six, God's fatherhood settles the matter of obedience. It settles the matter of obedience. Think about this. We expect earthly children to obey their fathers, don't we? And those fathers are unworthy sinners. God is our perfect heavenly father of infinite worth. So shouldn't we obey him? Jesus obeyed the father. He said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. As he's facing the cross, he said, he prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. If he can willingly assign himself a place of subservience in perfection, certainly we can be subservient in our imperfection. In his grace, God loves and cares for his children who are disobedient. The story of the prodigal son in Luke 15 should be called the story of the loving father. 
Because first of all, it's a picture of our Heavenly Father who can forgive a rebellious child who becomes dissolute, wanders away, and then returns begging for help. And he even seeks to forgive those who think they're serving him because they behave morally. But the truth is they're self-righteous. Mm -hmm. He desires both of them to obey him. So then to begin a prayer, our Father who is in heaven is to indicate my eagerness to come as a child beloved to a loving father to receive all that his love can possibly give me. And it indicates God's eagerness to lend his ear, his power, and his eternal blessings to the petition of his children if it serves them best and further reveals his purpose and glory. Well, that brings us to the next aspect of God's person that Jesus addresses here, and that's found at the end of verse 9. It says, Hallowed be your name. This is so important, but it's often completely neglected or just flippantly passed by in our prayers. But we are to recognize that God is holy and that he is to be the priority of our prayers. If there's one principle that we ought to draw out of this, it is that the purpose of prayer is to impress you with God much more than it is to impress God with you or your needs. We're not to pray because we want God to think we're holy. And we're not to pray to get God to give us what we want. Rather, we are to pray in order to put God on display. You recall what we read in John 14, 13? It says, whatever you ask in my name that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Why does God hear your prayer and answer? In order that the Father may be glorified. Prayer is ever and always, first and foremost, a recognition of God's majestic glory and an act of submission to it. All of our petitions, all of our supplications, all of our requests, all of our passions, all of our trials, all of our problems are all subject to, verse 9, His name, verse 10, His kingdom, verse 10, His will. All prayer begins there. And after submitting everything to him, then in verse 11, we say, give us. Verse 12, forgive us. Verse 13, lead us. But the giving, forgiving, and leading of us comes only when God is put in the proper place. True worship begins with God. True worship is forgetting self and glorifying him. Unfortunately, most people think of prayer as an effort to bring God into line with their own desires. That's a very prominent approach to prayer in the church today. In fact, it's not just prominent, it's predominant. Uh, people are claiming things in the name of God, staking claim on what God supposedly has to do, going into God's presence and affirming that he must do such and such a thing, and so forth. And there are charlatans who call themselves pastors who tell people to demand things from God. By their faith, they demand that God does such and such for them. And if you don't do that, they say you don't have enough faith to fully believe God will answer your prayers. So they turn prayer into something more like demanding things from God than anything else. And they all want it on their own conditions. And whether we like to admit it or not, in many cases, that's the same way we pray. Mm 
but that sort of thing has been going on since Genesis. Let me show you what I mean. In uh, turn, look at Genesis 28, verses 21, 20 and 21. I have some sheets here that those that came in late didn't get. If y'all would pass these around. Genesis 28, verse 21, starting at verse 20, we're told, Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. Now, how do you like that for a conditional prayer? God, if you'll do these things for me, then I'll worship you. If you don't, well, then I'm not going to be on your team. Then verse 22, he says, This stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give it a tenth to you. He's saying, Lord, I'll even be a tither if you do what I want. Don't read that and think, my, my, oh, my, isn't Jacob making a great vow? No, that wasn't a spiritual vow. That's a fleshly vow. He's saying, God, if you do what I tell you to do, and then I'll, then I'll let you be my God. That isn't how you're supposed to pray. You don't go to God in prayer demanding anything, commanding God, affirming that everything, everything you say you'll receive. That isn't true. That's what the Word of Faith Charismatics teach all the time. They say, if you'll just believe you have it, you'll get it. That's baloney. That isn't true. That's playing games with people's minds. And even worse is playing games with God's sovereignty. Prayer has at its purpose the uplifting of God, the recognition of God's rightful place in your life and in this universe and the manifestation of his majesty and his sovereign will. And we bring all other items into agreement with that. Prayer is for God. The whole of this model prayer focuses on God. And the next thing this prayer tells us about the person of God is that his name is to be hallowed. It says, hallowed be your name. Now that clause is both a statement of honor and a petition or request. It is acknowledging that God's name is to be honored, but it's also asking God to honor his own name, that he would be predominant and preeminent in everything. Arthur Pink says this about the phrase, quote, How clearly then is the fundamental duty in prayers here set forth? Self and all its needs must be given a secondary place, and the Lord freely accorded the preeminence in our thoughts, desires, and supplications. This petition must take the precedence for the glory of God's great name and the ultimate end of all things. Every other request must not only be subordinated to this one, but be in harmony with and in pursuance of it. We cannot pray aright unless the honor of God be dominant in our hearts, end quote. So then, hallowed be your name puts God in the prior priority place. Even though he is my loving father, even though he cares to meet my needs, even though he has heavenly resources to meet my needs, my first petition is not on my own behalf, but it's on his. Hallowed be your name. It's a warning against self-seeking prayer at the very start. 
God has the priority. Now, I suppose that if you grew up in a church like me, you've said, hallowed be your name a lot of times in your life. Uh, you've recited the Lord's Prayer so many times you can say it without even thinking about it. Uh, so you've heard the word hallowed and the concept of hallowed be your name, but I wonder if you really understand what it means. Many people think it's sort of like saying, long live the king. Uh, you know, just as a way to open up the prayer, acknowledging who God is and making a formal statement uh, that honors him. But that's not what it is. When Jesus says, hallowed be your name, he's saying something that's so full and rich that it's impossible for anyone to exhaust all that it means in this lifetime. Because it encompasses all of God's nature and all of man's response to his nature. It isn't some casual bit of religious routine. It's not just reciting some words that are nice thoughts about God. It's way more than that. It opens up a whole dimension of respect and reverence and awe and appreciation and honor and glory and adoration and worship for God. You see, the concept of your name is not restricted to a title. Today we think of someone's name, and that's all it is, is a name. And it really doesn't mean much other than that's the way we distinguish that person from another person. William Shakespeare is famous for coining that phrase, what's in a name? Uh, to convey the idea that the naming of things is irrelevant. My name is Bruce. Bruce is a famous Scottish surname that originated from the French Normans who conquered Scotland in 1066. It originally meant a brushwood thicket or a willow wood thicket. There's really Nothing in that name. I would dare say there aren't any men in the world named Bruce who are actually from a brushwood thicket. Most people today don't look into the meaning of a name before they name their child. Uh, they just like the name. Unless, of course, it's Judas or Adolf. Uh, you don't hear those names anymore because of their historical background. Uh, but we need to go back and look through the term name as a Jew saw it. The Jews had a very had such a sacredness attached to God's name that they had gone overboard. They were concerned about not saying God's name, yet they continually dishonored him. They disobeyed his word, ignored his truths. They had a history of worshiping other gods, but they tried to hallow his name. That is the written name of God. I'm sure you recall that in the Old Testament, God revealed his name to Moses at the burning bush. And the Old Testament records the name using what the theologians refer to as the tetragrammaton. You see that word on your sheet there? That's a big word, which literally means four letters. Uh, and that's because in the Old Testament Hebrew, it only had the letters Y-H-W-H. -H. When the prophets were writing the Old Testament, parchment and papyrus paper uh, were not as common like paper is today. So they developed a way of writing that shortened up the space that they needed. That way they could get more words on a scroll of parchment than they would otherwise. What they did was to eliminate all the vowels in the words. And so the Hebrew language in its written form uh, was written only with consonants. And in its spoken form, the vowels were included. 
Uh, it's still possible for readers to read the scroll and understand what was written because they knew how the words were pronounced and what vowels went in the words. For example, if you look at that sentence that I've written there on your sheet, I'm sure you can figure out that what that means there is Ephesians 2.10, which says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So if you could read Hebrew, you would be able to look at the Old Testament scrolls and read them even though there were no vowels in the text. Now, when you go back to your old King James Version Bible, you'll see that sometimes the Old Testament includes God's name as Jehovah. Uh, but did you know that there's no such word as Jehovah in Hebrew? Uh, you say, well, where did it come from then? Well, it was a medieval misunderstanding. You see, there were a group of Jews known as the Masoretes. You see, they're written there, who lived and worked from the late 5th century A.D. until the 10th century A.D. Uh, to compile and preserve a system of pronunciation and grammatical uh, guides to Jewish texts, including the Old Testament. And because the written language included no vowels, the Masoretes developed a system that were called vowel pointers, uh, which indicated to the reader what vowels should be in a word uh, so that you would know how to pronounce it. Vowel pointers are little dots and diacritical marks that they stuck into the words uh, to represent the vowels so that you knew how to say the word. Well, the Jews refused to read the name of God, the Tetragrammaton, uh, aloud when they read the scriptures. So what they did was that when they were reading the text and they came to the Tetragrammaton, they said the word Adonai, which means Lord. And in order to provide a way for them not to slip up and read God's name, they took the vowel pointers for the word Adonai and they inserted them into the consonants YHWH the Tetragrammaton, and combine them with those vowels. And so it was nothing more that as you were reading along and you got to the word there, the Tetragrammaton, instead of saying that, you said Adonai. And there were the vowel pointers there to remind you to do that. Well, about 500 years later, an Italian monk, monk named Galatinus misunderstood what the Masoretes had done, and he looked at the Masoretic text and saw the Tetragrammaton with the vowel pointers from Adonai in it, and he thought that the name of God was Jehovah, because that would be the pronunciation of the Tetragrammaton with the vowels from Adonai in it. You see, the Y in English represents the sound J in certain other languages, and the W is often pronounced V in many other languages. So that's how it came about. It was a complete mistake and a made-up word. Jehovah is not the name of God. Back in Exodus 3, God told Moses that his name was I Am. In verse 13, it says, Then Moses said to God, Because I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And verse 14 says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I Am has sent me to you. And those words, I am, is the Tetragrammaton. It occurs over 6,800 times in the Old Testament.
meaning that this name is by far the most common way of referring to God. Scholars tell us that the more likely and proper pronunciation of God's name is Yahweh, uh, based on ancient transliterations. However, most English translations have typically chosen to translate it as Lord, following a custom originally initiated by the Septuagint and perpetuated in the Latin Vulgate. They normally use the small caps typeset to distinguish it from the word Adonai, which also means Lord, uh, and it occurs 335 times. Now, as I've just explained why the word Jehovah is not the name of God, but a complete misunderstanding, which I don't believe should be used in a Bible, uh, at the same time, I still am willing to sing hymns that include it, such as Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. Uh, why? Because the pronunciation of names gets often gets mangled in their journey from one language to another. Uh, for example, the name Jesus sounds very little like the Hebrew name that Joseph and Mary would have called him. Uh, they would have called him Yeshua. Uh, so even in its origins, even though if its origins lie in a blunder, Jehovah became a word in many languages, and I recognize that it's here to stay. Uh, so I don't jump on people who use the term because that's what they've always heard, but I don't like Bible translations to use it because it's a colossal medieval mistake. Uh, however, there's a new version of the Bible, the Legacy Standard Bible, uh, which just came out, and it uses the word Yahweh instead of the word Lord. Uh, it's a revision of the 1995 New American Standard Bible. It's revised and updated by the faculty at the Master's Seminary in California, seminary where John MacArthur is the chancellor. If you read it, you'll quickly figure out that God must have wanted to be called by his name Yahweh because it occurs so often in the text. Um, you'll see that overall it's very similar to the New American Standard with just a few small wording changes, um, but the use of the name Yahweh will jump out at you immediately. Turn with me to Psalm 34. <clears throat> Let me read you Psalm 34 from the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible, and you follow along in your, your New American Standard if you have one, if that's what you're using, and notice the differences. Psalm 34. I will bless Yahweh at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in Yahweh. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify Yahweh with me and let us exalt his name together. I inquired of Yahweh and he answered me and delivered me from all that I dread. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be humiliated. This poor man cried out and Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear Yahweh, you his saints, for there is no for there is no want to those who fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but those they, they who inquire of Yahweh will not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. Who is the man who delights in life and loves many days that he may see good? Guard your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of Yahweh are towards the righteous and his ears are open to their cry for help. The face of Yahweh is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry and Yahweh hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Yahweh is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. 
Many are the evils against the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall say, shall, shall lay the, shall slay the wicked, lay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Yahweh redeems the soul of his slaves and all those who take refuge in him will not be condemned. So I think the Legacy Standard Bible is a very interesting Bible version, one which is probably the most accurate of all the versions because it takes the most literal version, the New American Standard, and corrects it by adding God's name in as Yahweh. Um, now, if my Lagos Bible software would just get an electronic version of it added to their program so that I could just cut and paste it into my notes like I do with my New American Standard now, I'll probably switch over to it. We'll see what happens. Um, but now getting back to the issue at hand, why didn't the Jews want to call God by his name Yahweh? Why did they substitute the word Adonai instead? Because they considered that to be holding the name of God sacred. Uh, but the truth is that they reduced it down to just a name, not God's person and will. So they wouldn't say Yahweh. In fact, even today, many English-speaking Jews still won't write out the word God. If you like, look there on your sheet. They, they write G-D. That's, that's what the way they do it. But while the Jews of Jesus' day were so careful not to say the name, they constantly blasphemed who he was by their failure to obey his law from the heart rather than just by their outward conformity, which was itself rather strange. So what Jesus is teaching here is that hallowing God's name is to respect him for all he, who he is, not just his name. It's an all-encompassing concept. God's name implies infinitely more than his titles and designations. It represents all that he is, his character, plan, and will. Let me show you an illustration of this from Scripture. Go back to Exodus 34. Exodus 34. You'll see that Moses is having a discussion with God about his glory. He wants to be confident that God is with him. And so in verse 18 of chapter 33, he says, I pray you show me your glory. In other words, Lord, don't give me this job of leading your people because I can't do it without you here. And I want to know you're here by visibly showing me your glory. So the Lord says, okay, I'll do that. And then we come to chapter 34 and we see it happen. Verse, 30, verse 5, and I'm going to read from the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible here. It says, Then Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him, and he called upon the name of Yahweh. And then in verse 6, Yahweh comes down and proclaims his name to Moses. And look what he says. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh, God. Does he stop there? No. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That means he's a holy and just God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. That means he's a God of judgment. Now, do you get the picture? God says, I'll proclaim my name. Here's my name compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding loving kindness, truthful, merciful, forgiving iniquity, so forth. In other words, the name of God is the composite of all of his attributes. All that God is is embodied in his name. 
and hallowing his name is not having some kind of fetish about saying the word God or saying the name Yahweh. It's honoring as holy all that God is in terms of his nature and attributes. For example, in Psalm 910, David says, those who know your name will put their trust in you. Now, if we thought the concept of name referred only to the word, why does everyone who knows the word God trust in? Does everyone who knows the word God trust in him? No, of course not. But those who perceive the fullness of who he is, who know and understand his character, they are the ones who trust in him. In Psalm 717, David again proclaims, I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. That's typical Hebrew parallelism, parallelism in which the first phrase states something and the second phrase states something else as the equivalent of the first phrase. In this case, the first half says he gives thanks to God in accordance with God's righteousness. And the second half says he sings praises to the Lord's name. So he's paralleling God's righteousness with his name, showing their equivalence. In Psalm 102.15, it says, So the nations will fear the name of Yahweh. Do the nations fear the name, the word Yahweh? No. They fear the embodiment of all that God is. That's what it means. But the key to understanding the concept of God's name is found in John 17.6. Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer right before his betrayal and crucifixion. He says to the Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Now, what did he mean? He meant, I have revealed who you are. What did John say in the first chapter of his gospel? Verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I, we saw his glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, Jesus revealed God to man. You remember what he told Philip when Philip asked him, show us the Father? What did he say? Have I been with you so long and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus was the embodiment of the name of God. He was the manifestation, the human disclosure of all that God is. So God's name is not merely a title. It is the sum of all that he is. One one Bible teacher I studied suggested we might begin to pray this model prayer this way. Our Father who loves us and cares for us and who has in heaven supplies to meet our every need. May your person, your identity, your character, your nature, your attributes, your reputation, your very being itself be hallowed. That's what it's saying. This phrase, hallowed be your name, is not some glib phrase just thrown in by God periodically in a ritual. It's a way of, of approaching God continuously to understand his fullness and to hallow him for who he is. Now, there are several names of God that are given to us in Scripture, and they help understand the magnitude of his character. And each one of those names expresses some part of his character. For example, the third word of the Hebrew text in Genesis 1-1 is Elohim. Elohim, in the beginning, God. Elohim is the creator God. God is called by that name 46 times in the first two chapters of Genesis. In Genesis 14, 18 and 19, he's called, referred to as El Elyon, God Most High. That speaks of him as being the sovereign over the entire universe, greater than any other so-called God. The, Hebrew, the Old Testament calls him Yahweh Yirah, our provider. Yahweh Nisi, our banner. Yahweh Rapha, our healer. Yahweh Shalom, our peace. Yahweh Sidkenu, 
our righteousness. Yahweh Sabaoth, God of hosts or angel armies. Yahweh Shema, the God who is there in the sense of being near or present. And Yahweh Mekodishkim, which means the God who sanctifies. All of those names speak of his attributes. The Bible calls him so many names showing the fullness of who he is. But the greatest name of God ever that God ever took, the greatest name by which God has ever been designated in history is the name Yeshua, which means Savior, Deliverer. The name Yeshua actually translates the English name Joshua, but the Greek transliteration was Jesus, and its English spelling is Jesus. Those, so the names Joshua and Jesus are essentially the na same name. Both are English pronunciations of the Hebrew and Greek names for our Lord. And as the Lord Jesus Christ, he called himself by many other names. He called himself the bread of life, the living water, the way, the truth, the life, the resurrection, the good shepherd, the branch, the bright morning star, the Lamb of God, and so many, many more. And all of those names touched on the various attributes of his character so that when we speak of God in his name, we're not speaking about a title. We're speaking about the fullness of who he is. And as we're now entering the Christmas season, when we will have no doubt you will hear Isaiah 9, 6 read or sung as in Handel's Messiah. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Those are all designations of his nature. Well, I'm looking at this and going, I'm not going to finish. But I'm going to have to stop. So, are there any questions or comments about all this material? Yes, Norm. The Pater, was that supposed to be Abba as the translation? Pater? Yeah. No, it means our Father. It's Greek for Father. That's the Greek. But as I said, Jesus didn't say the word Pater. That's the, the Greek. He would have said the Aramaic, uh, Hebrew Aramaic, Jewish Aramaic, which would have been Abba. Anything else? Yes, Jim? Yeah, in Exodus uh, 34, 14, it says that uh, his name is Jealous, for he is the Jealous God. Yeah, yeah. There's all kinds of names he calls himself. Okay, anything else? Okay, let me shut this off. Okay, let me close in prayer. If I can get this to stop.